morning, church. There we go. My name is Don Raleigh, and I'm the honorary Irishman of, today, of today's service. So with the phenomenal holiday that is swiftly approaching this Thursday, I encourage everyone to celebrate in due form. The best way to do that is go out and celebrate at your local public houses or pubs. <laughs> like I said, everybody is Irish on, on St. Patrick's Day, and the way that you can do that is by taking your last name and just adding an O before it. So my name is Raleigh, so it's O Raleigh. And if your name is O'Reilly, just add two additional O's, and it'll all work out. <laughs> oh, 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 O'Reilly? All right, yeah. There we go. So today I'm going to be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 25 through 31. I'll be reading in Irish. The English translation will be on the screen as I read. Achad duchorida na merken du bifur alshin tinara algam dircha du miren komer hara Marnish Farsha Torshinan on the Richinia Rechbasha Dilas. We machine Osham got mech, so on son Ash Rishim Mota, Alta Dulacher, Alma Ishmeth Duchuin Bachin Marshain, Alfin Buffil, Tushinhanda, Doc Manoi, Nacher Dulacha Ria, On Buffil Shulhagata Shon Menahorai, Nach Myra Bain. Aho falsh mosh paloshon tu nebefar peshadad huish nan august ma farshin al megadern neb wifel beshda nishnan an gerta du shumvaitad erlika so bishit du tabada nan farla akad emeshe de horna korhit august nan dream do shoy marhwing nak dorsha kui August and Dream Nachni Gerstrash, Mar Loshed Nadain Grenina. August and Dream Shushanas, Mar Huinish Gash Shelech Eshai. August and Dream Shirda Shagalasha, Mar Dwin Nach Kelekandhain Esh. Or Imithin, Shemith an Thogeshalai Thart. That was easy. <laughs> Welcome to Trinity City Church, brothers and sisters. I'm uh, Brian. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity. First thing that we usually do at this time, if parents haven't done so already, uh, up to second grade can be dismissed for children's church and a reminder to parents to pick them up right before or right after you take communion. Uh, we are going through a sermon series, if you're new, uh, on 1 Corinthians, and we're several weeks into that sermon series in a section that has dealt with uh, quite a bit of different topics of uh, theology of the body and sex, singleness, marriage, and, and so on. This is uh, the last sermon in that section within 1 Corinthians that deals with those matters. And uh, next week, we take one week off of the sermon series because we have a guest preacher that will be coming in uh, to preach God's word. His name is Friday. He's a pastor and a colleague of mine. I serve with him on a board of directors for uh, the free churches within Minnesota, which is what our church is a part of, is the free church denomination. And he is being sent out to uh, Kenya uh, to participate in uh, church planting. So he is going to be uh, coming here to preach God's word next week. And then the following week is when we'll get into chapter 8, where Paul switches topics a little bit to some other matters that he needs to deal with uh, in this uh, series. Let's go ahead and pray, and we'll dive into the text today. Let's pray. 
Lord Jesus, thank you for this gathering of saints. Thank you for your sons and daughters who are here. Thank you for my brothers and sisters who are pursuing you, love your gospel. I even pray for those here, Lord, that might be exploring the gospel. They don't have faith yet, but they feel drawn to Jesus by your spirit. I thank you that they're here. So lean into these various topics and issues of daily life that your scriptures address. Now may your powerful word speak deeply into our hearts now as we hear it preached and as we hear how the gospel applies to yet another area of life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The first verse of this uh, section where he's dealing with one last uh, item on the checklist dealing with marriage and singleness, he writes, Paul writes, verse 25, now about those virgins. That's how he uh, opens that section. And it's like when he's when he's doing all these topics, there's various issues that are going on in this local church, and he's talked already about a guy that slept with his stepmom and issues that the, the, the church has been doing with, like, lawsuits and that sort of thing, and now he's coming to this other issue where it's uh, this item of, well, about those virgins. And my, my staff wanted me to title the, the sermon that, about those virgins, just to get some clicks online. I, I titled it instead The Calling of Single Life because uh, in a more comprehensive sense, that's what Paul is mainly dealing with in this section. But it does remind us of how to put this verse into context. Like, what has been going on, especially if you're just joining us for this section? Like, why are we here talking about virgins? What does that mean? And here, what, how Paul uses that term, he's, he's talking about young women who are engaged but not yet married. And it's another relational situation that he's been dealing with that goes all the way back to the first verse of chapter 1, where he's, he's taking on this belief in the local church where there's a portion of people that believe that it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. He quotes them in the first verse of this chapter. And Paul has been addressing this belief throughout the chapter, and in one sense, Paul agrees with it. He believes that outside of marriage, it's good for someone not to have sex. But the people in Corinthians, however, the church in Corinth, have been taking this principle farther than it was intended to go. They seem to believe in some sort of high spiritual ideal that sees celibacy as something that everybody needs to pursue. So Paul is correcting Christians in Corinth uh, for this belief because they're misapplying it to areas of marriage. For example, trying to tell folks that it's better to be celibate in married or marriage or to avoid getting married in pursuit of this high spiritual ideal or even using it as grounds to justify divorce. So Paul says, rather than trying to change your relational situation for some sort of high spiritual ideal, each person should see how God has called them to that situation and that relationship and how God is redeeming them in the situation they're currently in because God has different gifts for different people. So now we come to this section where he's dealing with engagement and singleness, and he still deals with it in, in regards to the context of the relationship of marriage and singleness, like we talked about all a couple of weeks ago, but here he leans into the single life a little bit more than he has in previous verses. So let's see how he starts to tackle the issue. Look at verses 25 through uh, 28 with me. Now about virgins. I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think it is good for a man to remain as he is. 
Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. So Paul keeps emphasizing this uh, phrase that he's not giving a direct command from the Lord. And he uses phrases like, I think, or it's his judgment is essentially what he's getting at. He's not giving some sort of eternal principles about marriage and singleness. He's addressing these issues as a pastor in a specific situation where he's giving pastoral judgment that may have principles that apply to us today, but also there might be some differences. So what is Paul's judgment? He says, I think it is good for a man to remain as he is. In other words, he says, are you engaged? Don't seek to get out of the commitment. You can go through with it. Follow through with your promise. Are you not engaged? Then it's fine not to pursue it or feel pressure that you ought to. If you do end up getting married, he says, then you're not sinning. You can see there where he's pushing back on that spiritual idealism that says that it's this kind of second-class relationship where celibacy and singleness is better. And he says, if you do get married and God calls you to that, that is not second-class. You're not sinning. You're not, you're not, you're not uh, bailing out on a more holy life if you're doing that. Each person, he says, has their own gift. One is not better than the other or more pure than the other. And he continues to unpack themes that he's already talked about in verses 36 through 38. If anyone is worried that he might not be acting honorably towards the virgin he is engaged to, and if his passions are too strong and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He is not sinning. They should get married. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion but has control over his will, and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. So then, he concludes, he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does better. And then you get at the end there, and he's like, wait a minute, does better? Does better? And you're starting to have the curiosity, does Paul have a preference here? In verse 7, to go back uh, uh, to, to that uh, part of the chapter. He says, I wish that all of you were as I am. Paul is single, if you didn't know that. I wish all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Each person, Paul says, has a gift, meaning either single or unmarried, or if you're united to a spouse and married, each has its own gift. If anyone has told you you have the gift of singleness, for example, that might be a phrase that you've heard a little bit, and it's probably a little triggering because usually it's like, ah, you know, you don't like singleness, you have the gift of singleness, like live with it, it's a good thing, it's a great, it's a great thing, you have that gift, so deal with it, right? There's a misunderstanding, though, I think, about what Paul's language of gift means. The misunderstanding is that many understand gift as something that comes easy or naturally to them. It's something that you're at peace with, or at least that's the, the meaning. Is like, well, you have the gift of singleness. You should be at peace with it. You should like it. You should feel like this is something that's easy for you. But unfortunately, this is a misunderstanding. That's not the way the scriptures talk about gifts, whether it's a gift of singleness or a gift of marriage. The emphasis of gift in Scripture is a calling or a vocation that is for the sake of building others up. A gift is a vocation or a calling whose purpose is to build someone else up or other people up. 
It's also, especially in this context of these different relationships, not something you're necessarily locked into in life. A calling can change as the Lord wills it to change. But Paul is saying whatever the calling or gift you have from the Lord, the main purpose is to build others up. The gift of marriage doesn't mean that marriage will be easy, but it means that the purpose of that relationship and your, your participation in that relationship is to build your family up in the Lord so that your household will be a blessing to others. If it's the gift of singleness, that doesn't mean that you'll necessarily be at peace with singleness, but it does mean that when you are single, the purpose of your singleness is to build others up in the Lord, your friends, your brothers and sisters in Christ, and your neighbors, for example. Yet Paul still seems to have a preference here. He uses this language of one does better when they're single. And he wishes, so does he wish that other people and all people want to be single? This seems to be a mixed message because he says that there's nothing wrong with marriage. Let's dig into this a little bit by looking at verses 26 and 28. Why does he have a preference for singleness, even though he says that both are good gifts and calling? Verse 26, he says, Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. And then skipping down to verse 28, he says, But those who marry will face many troubles in life, and I want to spare you of this. So when Paul says those who marry face many troubles in life and he wants to spare them from that, what does he mean? What is the trouble of marriage that he's talking about? Does he have that view that you might have heard uh, in, in even our modern era that, man, you get married, you put on the ball and chain. It's just trouble. Like, just avoid it at all costs. The single life is better. Is that the theology? Is that the framework that Paul is coming from? No. And we can see it in the context a little bit right away because when he talks about troubles uh, in verse 26, he calls them the present crisis, present being a key term there. These troubles are present, and we don't know what the present crisis is. This kind of drives people nuts, of course, when you're reading the scriptures and you're trying to understand it because he doesn't give details about whatever this crisis is. All we know is that it's happening in real time. It's occurring right now, but he doesn't tell us what it is. His readers would have known what it is, but we have enough distance from this letter that we don't quite know what the present crisis was other than it was happening at the time he was writing the letter. Some commentators speculate that it could have been a famine that was occurring around the time that this letter was written, but we don't know for sure what the present crisis is. All we know is that it was present, and Paul is giving pastoral wisdom in this present crisis. So whether it was a famine or something else, something was going down that caused him to give some unique counsel during this time. But... Why does Paul then say that it's better not to marry if there's some type of present crisis like a famine going on? Jesus, too, warns about the extra burden of family life during a crisis. When teaching about the fall of Jerusalem and how that event will point to a greater time of trouble in the end of days, Jesus says in Luke 21:23, "...how dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers." There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. Now, why is Jesus teaching that? Is he against uh, uh, childbearing and nursing? No, he's putting it in this context that there's a lot going down. There's some extreme things happening in that setting that he says, during these times of trouble, there is an added burden when you also have to care for a family. 
And societies kind of acknowledge this too, uh, quite naturally during times of crisis too. Do you ever notice that birth rates often go down if there's a war, if there's an economic depression or recession, or even during pandemics? Because when times are, have an extra burden, people are like, I don't know if I can have a family right now because of all the other things that are going on. So what is Paul's point? He seems to be saying that marriage and family is hard and they those relationships and that calling becomes more difficult during a crisis. And his church at that time was facing a crisis. One of the books that I read uh, to prepare for this sermon was a book uh, by uh, Pastor Sam Alberry. He's a, a single Anglican priest who wrote a book called The Seven Myths About Singleness. And he has two different chapters. This is very fascinating. One is on the myth that singleness is hard, and the other is a chapter on the myth that singleness is easy. He says both. He says both are myths, meaning that there are elements of the calling of singleness that can be both hard and easy. Both are true. But in his chapter on the myth that singleness is hard, he points to an emphasis, and this emphasis in Scripture, that actually Scripture teaches marriage is hard. Take, for example, Matthew 19, Jesus is teaching on divorce by entering this theological debate that's happening. And the theological debate is about this specific verse in the Old Testament that teaches about divorce, and some people were interpreting it to mean that you can divorce for any reason, even trivial reasons. And Jesus says, no, that's not what the Scriptures teach. He reminds them that marriage is a one-flesh union of husband and wife that shouldn't be separated because that union is of God. Jesus says concerning, concerning that specific interpretation of these Old Testament texts that it's only permitting divorce in the case of adultery and nothing more. And so he has this very high view of marriage, but do you remember how the disciples and the people that were listening to this teaching respond? They say in verse 10, the disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. He says, if that's the arrangement that you can never separate unless it's a very extreme thing that really breaks the marriage covenant, then that's too high a standard. That sounds too hard. That sounds too difficult. And Sam Albury then goes on to give examples of what he means that, 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 that he's applying this text to this situation where, in one regard, marriage isn't this better and more easy relational calling, but it's actually very, very difficult. And he lists a bunch of examples to prove his point. He talks about that couples could be completely healthy, for example, going into a marriage, but then a spouse can get hit with health issues that completely changes the outlook and the dynamic of the marriage relationship. Maybe the health issue is so hard that you can't travel anymore, and even your day-to-day -day situation looks very, very different. And now you've come uh, less of a spouse and maybe more of a caretaker. He gives the example because married people uh, can sometimes come together and you marry one personality, one person, but then over time they completely change. And now it's difficult. Marriage is difficult because it's not the same person you married. Marriage can be difficult concerning children, not just the spouse. And he lists the difficulty and pain that comes when couples ha uh, start to engage in the idea of we're going to have kids now. And you have this ideal that it's going to be easy, it's going to be amazing, and we're going to have children, but then you start to face the difficulty and burden of things like a miscarriage or infertility. 
He gives the example that maybe you have, a, have children, but one of your kids has special needs, and you love that child with all of your heart and wouldn't change a thing, but this also adds a tremendous amount of responsibility to your family life. And in each one of these situations, there's examples of like when you go into marriage, you're not exactly sure what the future will entail, but there's situation after situation that starts to paint this picture that marriage is a responsibility, it has burdens as well as joys, and you can't just look at it as like this is the, the, the supreme relationship that if I just get in that, everything's going to be easy. That's not the case. Scripture is very clear that this relationship, this calling, is a burden that has a lot of responsibilities, and a lot of those responsibilities and a lot of those burdens that you bear are things that you can't prepare for until they start to happen to you. Now, none of this means that singleness doesn't have its own challenges. I'm going to get to that a little bit later in the sermon. But it is a reminder that life isn't necessarily easier if you can just change your relational status to something else. And with marriage specifically, if you're faced with some of these challenges, and on top of that, there's a crisis going on, then it's a huge burden, and that's what Paul has in mind. But he continues to say more, and he wants to provide a theological framework for looking at not only marriage, but also singleness. Look at verses 29 through 31 with me. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they do not, did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it was not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For the world in its present form is passing away. Now, if you take uh, Paul literally here, you're, you're going to miss his... Uh, rhetorical punch that he has here. He's giving it a bunch of examples of everyday life. That's what he's doing. Being married or single, mourning, happy, buying or using things in the world. And he's trying to put all these things in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says time is short and the world in its present form is passing away. And when Paul is using this language, it shows that he understands that the church during this time is set between two uh, amazing gospel-centered event. One, the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, and then one day that Christ will come again. And it's this new age, this new era that the church finds itself in where everything in life has to be understood in, in reference to these realities, that Jesus died on the cross, he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and one day he's coming back again. And he's just saying that because that's true, we need to look at everything in everyday life, every relationship, every activity that we do in a different light, in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when he keeps using this phrase, as if not, that's what he's trying to say. It means that these relationships, these experiences, the things that you own and use in the world are not the main reference point for gospel people. He's saying don't get absorbed in these things because they don't ultimately determine how you live or where you find your joy. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the main lens that you understand all of life through, including the calling and gift of singleness or marriage. He continues on to apply that in verses 32 through 35. I would like you to be free from concern. 
An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I am not saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in an undivided devotion to the Lord. Now, there's a couple different ways to read this passage. One way is to read that Paul is saying that unmarried, being an unmarried person is free from concern because that person can live mainly in an undevoted way to the Lord, whereas the married person is concerned with domestic affairs and how to please one's spouse rather than the Lord. So the single person has a good concern and the married person has a bad concern. And that's a legitimate way to look at the passage. But I think, and I'm going with commentator Gordon Fee as reference here, a better way to read this passage is I think it makes even more sense when that word concern that he uses throughout can be both a positive thing and a negative thing. Concern positively means you could care about something. This is something that burdens your heart in a way that this is a responsibility you care about it and you devote time to. But it could be a concern can be a negative thing because it is also anxiety, something that worries you, something that keeps you up at night. It's something that you could care about, but it's also something that could burden you. That's how concern can be understood. And then in verse 35, Paul says to both singles and married that he wants them not to be restricted. He wants them to be devoted to the Lord. In other words, to both singles and those who are married and have concerns about their relational status that's not informed by the gospel, he wants them to go from a concern about these relationships that might be anxiety because it's not looked at in the lens of the gospel and move to a type of concern where you care about these things and you're calling in a way that's, 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 that's correct because it's formed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. So marriage, in this sense, is described as something that deals with the affairs of this world, which could be both positive and negative, depending on if you're looking at it with the lens of the gospel or not. On the one hand, marriage is a domestic thing. It's about caring for your spouse and kids. In addition, if you're married, your interests will be divided, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. You can't do ministry just like Paul does, because Paul is single, and he does some crazy things that if you lived a life like Paul did, and you were married, you would be neglecting an important calling in your life to pursue ministry on that level of intensity. So there's a sense where the concern that they are likely bearing is a concern that's, that's, that's this burden that they're bearing about ministry that's not informed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. So therefore, their marriage relationships is a burden and source of anxiety. I've already mentioned examples of how marriage can be a burden and maybe a source of anxiety, but this situation is likely due to this theological belief that I mentioned already, that he mentions in the first verse of chapter 7, that there is this theology that's going on that says it's better to be single and celibate, to avoid sex because there's this holy calling where you devote all your energies and things to the Lord. And so these, these people are likely bearing this burden and this concern because they think, well, this is just a second-class calling. Paul wants them to be free from that. 
So his, his hesitancy to, uh, to um, recommend marriage isn't due to the, the fact that he would always give that recommendation no matter what. He says that the reason why he's recommending it is because of this present crisis and also because the theology that's driving the church at this time is one that's false. It's this high spiritual idealism that shouldn't be the lens that we look at marriage with. It should be the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I do think that there's an application here. I want to pause here for married folks especially and for those that, that uh, will get married someday or, or feel called to that at one point that I do see this situation a lot. And it's in ministry and it's also in the marketplace. That the level of devotion and time and energy that sometimes a spouse can put towards ministry or even in integration of faith and work as they try to live out their faith in the marketplace is at a level where it neglects the marriage relationship to which the person is called. That's one of the points here. That's not a gospel-centered way of looking at marriage. Some people are working so hard and neglecting their family and spouses so bad that they need to repent and remember that God is calling you in a good way to have divided concerns because that's the gift that he has given you. You're living this high spiritual idealism like you were in Paul's relational status as a single person, and in doing so, you are neglecting a vital ministry in the house when you spend so much time at work or you spend so much time in ministry and now you're relationally and emotionally and intimately distant from your spouse and your family. Paul says, look at the marriage relationship with the gospel and have a concern, a holy burden with this calling, this gift that God has given you. But how do we understand that Paul could be saying that a concern for a single person to be pleasing to the Lord is a negative thing? How do we understand that? Remember again back in verse 1. It's this high spiritual idealism that says that if you really want to be a holy person, you really need to devote yourself to the Lord and avoid all forms of indulgences in this world, whatever type of pleasurable thing you can enjoy. That's the calling. That's the, that's the thing that these people in the church keep telling singles. And so it's this high type of like burden and anxiety that's related to their spirituality that's driven by this, this do more, avoid this, strive for this. And so there are singles in the church that Paul's addressing who are not free in Christ as singles, but rather they're burdened with the question, am I serving the Lord enough? Am I holy enough? Am I good enough? And Paul doesn't want this lens that he quotes at the first verse to be the way that we consider singleness. Paul prefers singleness. He's very clear about that because of the present crisis and also the divided nature of marriage. Yet the pursuit of singleness isn't the only calling, he reminds us. Nor should someone pursue it because you think it's morally superior or because you're driven by some sort of anxious legalism of pleasing the Lord. Paul wants us to see singleness in light of the gospel. It's a good calling from the Lord and one in which someone can serve the Lord and the church in unique ways. That's how he wants us to view singleness. And I think one of the big takeaways of a text like this in 1 Corinthians is that both relationships, both types of callings 
have concerns or burdens. Yet Paul wants us to see both marriage and the single life in light of the gospel and decide accordingly how we are going to follow the Lord. As I mentioned before, this also means that we all need to understand the unique burdens that single folks bear. And this is something that all of us are single at one point. Even some folks had been married and are, are now in another state of singleness because of life happening, right? So this applies to many different people. At some point in our life, this is a reality. But I want to go back to Sam Alberry because I think he paints a really good picture and gives us a really good uh, example after example of how to understand what is the unique burdens and concerns that single folks bear so that those of us that might not be single now can be sympathetic and empathetic with them. He talks about how being single in one's 20s and 30s is very different, for example, than being single in the late 30s and 40s. He says, in your 20s and 30s, most friends are not married and you share much of life with your friends, but the reality is uh, sometimes that changes later in life. It changes, for example, with questions from strangers if you're in your late 30s or 40s and you're not married yet that assume that you are married, how long you've been married, who's your spouse, where's your family live, and then there's also these poten potential awkward follow-up questions when somebody finds out that you are not married. It's the burden of friends you've been close with early in your life moving on to get married and then the, the, just the, the lamenting that happens because the dynamics of that relationship and that friendship change because of that. It's a unique burden that single folks experience. He talks about how weddings can become bittersweet. He details the unique challenges and thoughts of singles who live alone. Th thoughts like, well, if I go home from this trip to the grocery store and something happens, Who's going to notice? How long is it going to take for them to call somebody to check in on me? He talks about how relationships between singles and married people can be often uh, uh, just one-sided. That singles often feel like they're the ones that have to initiate the hangout time because the families don't often think about them. He goes on to detail deep relationships that he does form with other households, but then after years and years of finally feeling like that person is part of this family, the family leaves town because of a significant life decision. And meanwhile, he is feeling, or a single person is feeling, like they were the family member that was integrated into this household, but now they feel neglected because with this big life change, they weren't consulted. They weren't... Uh, in a situation where they could pray with the family or think about what's going to happen to me and my part, my relational part in this relationship. I was neglected. I wasn't consulted. And so, therefore, singles often feel a deep sense of loss because now with that family moving away, there's no more spontaneous get-togethers, vacations, or meals around the table. Yet for Sam, he reminds himself that even if God called him to marriage, it doesn't make problems go away in this world. It just gives a context for new ones. So what he keeps going back to is what the same thing that Paul keeps going back to, and that's the trustworthiness of the gospel. Whether single or married, the goal of the gospel is for us mainly to find contentment in our relationship with the Lord if we're ever going to have peace with the gift of singleness or marriage. I want to end by quoting him and his experience with this. 
He writes, quote, For any of us, life can be very hard. I know people whose marriages have been the cause of a cause or occasion of agony, just as I have known people whose singleness has been the same. Even during the course of writing this chapter, I have had the reoccurrence of these periods of severe anxiety. And what I've been writing about, I am not writing just for you, I am writing for myself as well. I needed to be reminded of the power of God and that he is using me. I need to know that while there is so much beyond my capacity to handle, there is nothing beyond his. I don't need to worry about facing more than I can cope with. I only need to worry about facing more than God can cope with. And that thought gives me good cheer. And that's how we look at any type of relational gift that God calls us to throughout our life.